Callous unemotional behaviors can be challenging to understand. One community study of 1,136 children from third to seventh grade found that 10 to 32% of those with conduct disorder and 2 to 7% of those without conduct disorder met the callous emotional specifier threshold in the DSM-5. In this episode, we will discuss what callous unemotional behaviors are, what they look like, how to assess these behaviors, types of interventions, and more. Dr. Megan Rose Donahue joins us today to help us unpack this topic. She's an instructor in psychiatry and works in the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at WashU School of Medicine. Welcome to the Carlat Psychiatry Podcast. This is another episode from the Child Psychiatry Team. I'm Dr. Josh Fader, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlat Child Psychiatry Report and co-author of the Child Medication Factbook for Psychiatric Practice, our second edition is coming out early 2023. Yay. And I'm Mara Government, a licensed clinical social worker in Southern California with a private practice and an avid Carlat newsletter reader. Callous unemotional traits, better defined as callous unemotional behaviors, are characterized by an observable lack of morality, such as a lack of empathy, lack of guilt, a lack of pro-social behaviors. Children with callous unemotional behaviors often display shallow emotions. For example, they may lack connection to parents, feel little sadness when someone is hurt, and show less expression of emotions toward other people. They also show a lack of motivation. For instance, they might not put sufficient effort into schoolwork and extracurriculars. While these behaviors can seem frightening to many parents, it is important to remind them that callous, unemotional behaviors are treatable, especially when children are young and morality is developing and malleable. Callous, unemotional behaviors have a sizable genetic contribution, but there is no evidence that they become fixed during childhood. We target emotional and cognitive characteristics of children high in callous, unemotional behaviors in interventions, particularly in early childhood when morality is developing. So Dr. Fader, what happens if callous, unemotional behaviors are left unaddressed or even untreated? For children who have an active disregard for others or low levels of empathy, these are strong predictors of conduct problems and antisocial behaviors into adolescence. Without intervention, untreated callous and emotional behaviors can lead to antisocial behavior, criminality, and substance use disorders. Is empathy innate in young children? Well, yes. Children are biologically pre-wired to experience empathy. And you can see this shortly after birth when babies cry in response to other babies crying, but not to other equally loud or abrupt noises. By three to six months, they display other-oriented empathic concern when another person is distressed. They show this by looking at or trying to contact or touch the distressed person. Children with callous and emotional behaviors, however, have deficits in primary affective empathy, the ability to feel what another person is feeling. Our aim is to help parents or clinicians strengthen a child's empathy as they develop. What do low empathy and active disregard look like in children with callous and emotional behaviors? A child with low empathy does not care much or does not care at all 
when someone else is hurt or sad and typically does not intervene with pro-social behaviors like going to comfort a hurt person. So a child with high callous unemotional behaviors might see a boy fall on the playground and might not feel distress or sadness. That child might not care enough to comfort the boy, retrieve a Band-Aid or get a teacher's help. Active disregard, however, goes beyond just not caring. A child showing this kind of behavior takes pleasure in someone else's pain or sadness. For example, the child might see that same boy fall on the playground and laugh or make the situation worse by taunting him or even injuring him again. Is there an environmental component to the development of callous and emotional behaviors in children? It's a great question, Mira. There are some twin and adoption studies that show that callous and emotional behaviors often stem from a genetic predisposition combined with certain parenting practices, either parenting that lacks warmth or that is frankly harsh. Children with high callous unemotional behaviors may have disorganized amygdala networks and or reduced volumes in the amygdala and medial orbitofrontal cortex. This research needs to be replicated, but it supports early intervention during the increased neuroplasticity before adolescent pruning. Hmm. Can you elaborate on what you mean by warm versus harsh parenting? Yeah, well, warm parenting includes warm vocal tones, affection, warm praise and empathy towards the child. Harsh parenting includes negative affect toward the child, criticism, coercion, harsh punishment, frequent negative commands, name calling, overt expressions of anger and physical threats, and aggression, including spanking. One study found that children with a high genetic loading for callous and emotional behaviors who were raised by an adoptive parent high in warmth displayed lower levels of callous and emotional behaviors. So interventions that increase parental warmth and decrease harshness can impact the trajectory of callous and emotional behaviors. Children with callous unemotional behaviors have deficits primarily in affective empathy, the ability to feel what another person is feeling. When they are young, you don't see pro-social behaviors like sharing, taking turns, or coming to the aid of upset or injured peers. When they enter school, the deficits become more apparent. If they see an injured peer, they may laugh or try to hurt the person. If their friend is sad, say about dropping their ice cream cone, a child high in callous, unemotional behaviors might not care about their distress. As children age, they may show less than usual concern about social norms or little interest in schoolwork and extracurriculars. Older kids and teens start to show symptoms of conduct disorder, such as stealing, bullying, hurting others, all with little emotion or fear of consequences. Dr. Donahue, how do we distinguish callous unemotional behaviors in children with autism? Yeah, the autism question is interesting because, you know, children with CU traits and children with autism both display empathic deficits, but they're thought to be very different. And there's actually some research showing that those are very different ideologically. So it's really thought that children with CU traits have deficits primarily in effective empathy. So the ability to feel what another person is feeling, whereas children with autism primarily have deficits in cognitive empathy. So the ability to understand and apprehend you know, what another person is experiencing. And so those are very 
different manifestations of that. How do we distinguish callous and emotional behaviors in children with depression? When I was in grad school, I studied more of the basic science development of morality in very young children. So, you know, basic science questions about what does, you know, empathy and pro-social and guilt development really look like in, you know, the very earliest developmental stages like infancy and toddlerhood. And I also looked at ways in which the overdevelopment of empathic emotions contributes to risk for psychopathology. So for instance, you know, children with depression that tend to experience maladaptive guilt where, you know, they might have guilt that's excessive. So kind of more of that overdevelopment. So it sounds like depressed children might be less connected to others and struggle with motivation. However, they do not display the true lack of care about others that we see in kids with callous and emotional behaviors. In fact, children with depression often display excessive moral emotions, such as too much guilt rather than too little. Exactly. Do cultural differences impact your understanding of callous and emotional behaviors, including chronic cultural trauma or other social determinants? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and I, it wasn't one that I knew the answer to, so I did a literature search, and I, I came up empty. I mean, I wasn't able to find any studies that looked at cultural or racial or ethnic differences in CU behaviors in young children. I did find one meta-analysis looking at levels of CU traits. I, I can't remember if it was CU traits or psychopathy, and, but it, the sample was just comparing Black versus white individuals, and they found no differences. So I don't think this is something that's been well-researched and the small amount of evidence we have seems to suggest that there aren't racial differences in levels of CU traits. But if we're thinking about the impact of trauma and adversity and early childhood adversity, potentially causing secondary CU traits in children down the line as kind of a way to cope and detach from their experiences, I think that potentially has implications for you know, underrepresented minorities who are more likely to be living in poverty and more likely to experience adverse childhood experiences. So, you know, I think that's kind of one of many, many, many reasons to start targeting poverty and, and you know, trying to really, yeah, target poverty and reduce adverse childhood experiences in, in children. And especially when we know that these experiences of poverty and adverse childhood experience disproportionately fall on certain individuals in our country, you know, rather than others. How can trauma and neglect result in a lack of emotion and callous unemotional behaviors? So conduct problems are really the most strongly associated with CU traits. So, you know, within children with serious conduct problems, CU traits tend to designate kids that are particularly severe and aggressive, you know, children with these high CU traits tend to show a more severe and stable pattern of conduct problems and then later antisocial behavior. So it's really predictive of both concurrent conduct problems and conduct problem severity and then future conduct problem severity and antisocial behavior, criminality, substance use disorders. So it's really most associated with conduct problems and antisocial behavior. But it, interestingly, when you talk about um, PTSD specifically, so it's interesting. So there, there are thought to be two groups of children with CU traits, and they are identified by their level of, of concurrent anxiety. So kind of early on, um, researchers hypothesized that anxiety was incompatible with CU traits because, you know, children with CU traits were supposed to have this fearless temperament, right? And so they thought that then anxiety disorders would be really incompatible with CU traits. But researchers have, you know, since identified that 
there are these two subgroups of children with CU traits. So they're, they're called primary and secondary. Children with primary CU traits are children who display the fearless temperament and tend to display really low levels of anxiety. And children with secondary CU traits, though, this group has been identified as children that do have high levels of CU traits, but they tend to have really high levels of anxiety as well. And a kind of key distinguisher here is these children tend to have much greater histories of physical and sexual abuse than other trauma. And so the etiologies of CU traits in these groups are thought to be different. So in children with primary variants, they're thought to be under, you know, the CU traits are thought to be caused by you know, insufficient arousal to emotional cues that I've kind of been talking about. So, you know, being insufficiently distressed when others are distressed, being insufficiently distressed by punishment. And with the secondary variant, it's thought to kind of be a develop as a coping mechanism to trauma or adversity. So I think that that is an interesting area of research where, you know, anxiety was thought to just be kind of antithetical to this, you know, construct or condition. But then this group of secondary or children with secondary CU traits has now been identified that's thought to be kind of this response to trauma. So I think that can kind of tie in with PTSD and, and exactly what you're saying of kind of the, the idea is more of a response to trauma as kind of a way to numb. So not caring about others' distress and not, and not being empathic and prosocial to others' distress because there's, um, you know, trauma and abuse going on and it's a way to kind of numb emotions to, you know, what's going on around them. When you assess children with callous unemotional behaviors, familiarize yourself with some clinical skills like the inventory of callous unemotional traits, the ICU. This is a 24-item parent report for young children with a self-report version for 11 to 17-year-old children. Another scale I like is the MAP-DB Low Concern Scale. It is a nine-item parent report for preschool-age children and spans the spectrum from displaying low empathy, pro-sociality, and guilt to taking active pleasure when another person is distressed. You can either use these scales informally or in a more structured way. Dr. Donahue, what treatments do you recommend for callous unemotional behaviors and how effective are they? So in older children with CU behaviors and, and kind of older studies have found some success in, in parenting interventions. And so the specific types of parenting that are, you know, that research suggests are most important to CU behaviors really parenting warmth is really important. So often with kids that have severe conduct problems, but they do not have high levels of CU traits, it's really harsh parenting that's, you know, thought to be the important target. So, you know, lowering harsh parenting, but for children with high levels of CU traits, it's really thought to be the absence of warm parenting that is an issue for these kids. So interventions have, you know, been shown to be effective in older children that really modify parenting. So there are, and, and there are currently some adaptations of P, PCIT that have been developed that really target increasing parenting warmth for these children. And really why that's thought to be really important for children with high CU traits is because in talking about, you know, kind of their temperamental characteristics, children with CU traits have been found to be really low on what, what's called affiliative reward. So kind of getting pleasure from initiating and maintaining interpersonal bonds. So basically, it's thought that, you know, a child that 
has kind of more of this natural lack of pleasure in seeking out and, you know, maintaining interpersonal bonds in the presence of a parent that also does not kind of cultivate that um, or facilitate that, that that is, you know, a, a particularly kind of risky combination. So it's really, yeah, there are some interventions that have targeted parenting that have been found to be effective. And then, like I kind of alluded to, now in younger children, there are interventions that are being developed that are really targeting more of the unique emotional and cognitive characteristics of children. So there was a couple of PCIT adaptations that have kind of adjunctive modules that target emotional development for these kids. So they contain the parenting intervention that targets increasing parenting warmth in the dyad, but they also contain a specific module that's, you know, aimed to target increasing empathy and pro-social behaviors and, you know, ability to understand others' distress cues. So there's one, for example, by the Eva Kimonis and Mark Dad's group, it's called PCITCU. And that has really, that has come out in the past couple of years, their, their trial on that. And it's, yeah, basically, you know, traditional PCIT. And then there's an adjunct module they call the CARES module. And it really targets certain characteristics of children with high CU traits. And so that was found to be effective in actually reducing children's CU traits. And that's in preschool age children. And then my mentor that, um, you know, I studied with in postdoc, Joan Levy, has a, another PCIT intervention called PCIT-ED. So the ED is emotion development. And it's similar. It is, you know, standard PCIT. And then there's a module at the end that was developed to enhance emotional development. And this was not developed to treat CU, but I did a, you know, post hoc analysis on it to see if it actually did decrease CU behaviors because there were a lot of components of the intervention that I thought would be effective. So it really teaches, you know, tries to teach and positively reinforce pro-social and, and empathic behavior. And, you know, there are a lot of, of other aspects of it that I thought would be beneficial to children with CU traits. And, and that intervention has also been found to decrease CU traits in, in young children. And this was preschool age children. But when you're talking about kind of trajectories, I think the verdict is still out on how far, you know, how far reaching the benefit of these treatments is. So in our study, you know, we found that that intervention decreased CU traits and that that was maintained at a three-month follow-up, but we don't have data on, you know, more distal follow-up time points in order to know exactly you know, how far reaching the benefit goes. Can the reliance on external rewards make kids dependent and prevent the development of internal standards? I think that positive reinforcement can be a really strong way to shape a behavior in a young child that then they're going to receive natural consequences of those new behaviors that then will feed into them having intrinsic motivation. There is some debate over whether, you know, it's a good idea to try to shape behaviors or skills like empathy and pro-social behavior using external motivation when we want this to be something that's internally motivated. But I think when you're talking about parenting, it's a little more complex because, you know, positive reinforcement from a parent is not just an effort to shape behavior. It's really part of the bonding, you know, and, and positive regard for the child. So I think it's a little more complex and probably it's not just about the reinforcement, but those parenting tactics serve to you know, kind of increase positive regard in the dyad and, you know, give the child that feedback from their parent, like kind of more of the warm parenting feedback that that's important. As we search for other treatments for callous and emotional behaviors and therapists who know 
parent-child interaction therapy, there are still steps we can take as clinicians. Evidence-based positive parent-child interventions, even if they are not parent-child interaction therapy, are worth the pursuit. Most important, the behavior of these kids can be disheartening, but don't allow yourself to be paralyzed by hopelessness. Look for trauma in the history to give you an idea of whether the child might have the more fearless primary or more anxious secondary type of callous and emotional behaviors. That will be a clue to how to proceed. When you counsel parents, figure out whether the child is insensitive to punishment, and if so, positive rewards are going to work better. And support parents to increase their parental warmth. This is not so straightforward when parents are exhausted and worried or when they themselves have histories of similar situations. You may need to listen and think with parents to hear their stories and help them work to support their child in a warm manner despite the strong feelings that they may have about their child's callous and emotional behaviors. For the kids themselves, we can increase their empathy, helping them recognize and respond to emotions in themselves and others. Look for social skills groups specifically for children who struggle with callous and emotional behaviors. These are places where children can interact with other children in a therapeutic setting. You might wonder whether there are medications to treat callous and emotional behaviors. Well, there aren't any. Mm -hmm. However, it is important to treat comorbid conditions that can accompany callous and emotional behaviors, such as ADHD, depression, and any other severe conditions such as disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, psychosis, bipolar disorder, or irritability in autism. As one example, remember that for kids with ADHD and aggression, you can successfully help the aggression about 60% of the time if you titrate first one stimulant, usually methylphenidate, and if that doesn't work, dextroamphetamine, and then if you need to, go to other medications. Dr. Donahue, do you have any closing thoughts for us? I think maybe something that's really important that we didn't really touch on that's, I think, really important for us as clinicians and for researchers to keep in mind is one of the reasons I like to say CU behaviors instead of CU traits is because I don't believe there's any evidence that these are immutable characteristics or that they're any more stable than any other personality traits that we come across. And I think it's really important to keep in mind the type of stigma that, you know, some of these labels can hold for, for children and for children in the justice system. And, you know, I just, I think especially, I, I think it's just really important to keep that in mind when we're seeing kids clinically and you know, looking at them as, you know, having difficulty with something that is treatable, that's workable, that's really worth working on. Like moral development is hopefully I don't need to kind of sell the importance of like instilling moral development in our youth. You know, I think it's so related to so many really important outcomes, you know, criminality and, and violent crime and substance use and really longstanding patterns of antisocial behavior. And I think it plays a big role in in all aspects of life. So I think it's important to look at these kids as as very treatable and going through something that we can work with them on. And especially when they're really young and morality is really, really developing and it's malleable and you know, that it, it's, it's an important thing to work on as kind of as early as we can and to kind of keep the outlook that these are just behaviors and they're, they're not immutable traits. Our upcoming print interview with Dr. Donahue will be available for subscribers to read in the Carlat Child Psychiatry Report. Hopefully people will check it out. Subscribers get print issues in the mail and email notifications when new issues are available on the website. 
Subscriptions also come with full access to all articles on the website and CME credits. And everything from Carlette Publishing is independently researched and produced. There's no funding from the pharmaceutical industry. Yes, the newsletters and books we produce depend entirely on reader support. There are no ads and our authors don't receive industry funding. And that helps us to bring you unbiased information that you can trust. As always, thanks for listening and have a great day.